Our Bible reading this morning is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and that part recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and reading from verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your, enemy, your neighbours and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that they may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only those brothers, only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God grant that more light and truth break forth from his word. Amen. I want to begin by telling you about Philip. That's not his actual name, but his words I recorded in an interview. And what he told me went like this. I'm quoting his exact words. If you didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, you were an academic failure. And I didn't. My parents wanted me to be clever. I remember my father once called me a beta plus, and I spent the rest of my life trying to prove him wrong. I was trying to be alpha double plus. Now, Philip went to one of this country's leading universities. It wasn't Oxford or Cambridge. For anyone else, this would have been a significant achievement, but in the eyes of his family, it was a failure. At the university, he says, I wore myself out in the process of doing absolutely everything I could to get a necessary result. He actually gained an upper second-class degree, which for anyone else would have been an excellent result. But in the eyes of his family, it was a failure. And so he felt guilty. Why? Well, because he felt that he wasn't good enough. This is the motto of all perfectionists. I am not good enough. He felt he should have tried harder. He thought he'd done wrong by not working even harder than he actually had worked. Oh, Philip was a perfectionist. Now, we've already heard in our Bible reading this morning that there's a verse in the Bible, indeed, in the words of Jesus himself that says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This idea of perfection in the Christian life, certainly, although the problem of perfectionism applies in other areas of life, In the Christian life, it's emphasized in the first letter of John, where John, the disciple, says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Now that is perfection again. So I've entitled my sermon this morning, 
what kind of perfection? I want to begin by doing something quite unusual, and that is to suggest that there may be an alternative meaning to the word perfect. Now, any Wycliffe Bible translator will tell you that one of the problems in translating the Bible into another language is that an apparently equivalent word in the other language may in fact convey a very different impression from the impression it creates in your own language. Now, I'll give you an example that probably a lot of you will be aware of if you learn French at school. What does the word chateau mean? It means a castle. We all learn that at school. But those of us who have been to France and have visited a chateau We'll be looking at it and saying, but castle, where are the battlements? Where are the fortifications? It doesn't look like a a castle to me. And the fact is that the word chateau in French can mean a castle in our sense, but it can also mean a mansion or a palace or a stately home. I hope that I've illustrated the point I'm making, that it's often difficult to get an exact translation of a word from a foreign language. Now, it may be that the word perfect in the text this morning means exactly what it appears to mean, that Jesus wants us to be flawless and sinless. But one Bible commentator says this very bluntly. He says, perfect is here a misleading translation. We can never be perfect as God is perfect. Right, well, let's look at a couple of alternative translations then. Here is one. If we remember that Jesus spoke Aramaic, which is a language closely related to Hebrew, there is in the New Testament, of course, which was written in Greek, a Greek word with an Hebrew word lying lying behind it. These words can mean perfect, but they can also mean complete, finished, fulfilled, in the sense of achieving something that was intended. So it's possible to translate the verse, be all that God wants us to be, all that God intends us to be just as God is all that we want him to be and need him to be. Now here is another alternative way of understanding it. When we read the Bible, there are two basic principles of understanding what it says. First of all, we must always see a text in its context. And secondly, we must always compare scripture with scripture. Now, the context here in Matthew chapter 5 is a paragraph about God being gracious to good and bad people alike. He's kind and generous to all. He doesn't make any distinctions. Now, if we compare this paragraph with the parallel paragraph in Luke chapter 6, it's very curious that Luke doesn't end with the words, be perfect, He ends with the words, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. And it looks as though 
Luke is picking up the sense of that whole context, that whole paragraph, that whether people are good or bad, whether they are kind or unkind to us, we have to be loving and positive towards them in the spirit of Jesus himself. I know that's not easy, but it may be, therefore, that what Jesus was saying when he said be perfect was be completely and perfectly and all-inclusively gracious to other people, whoever they are and whatever they are, just as your heavenly Father is. Now you may agree or not agree with me about translating the words in a different way, but whatever happens, we still have that very, very demanding verse in 1 John, which is actually repeated four times in the first letter about being sinless. I write this so that you don't sin. But I want to point out there that what John also says straight away is this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin. He's being thoroughly honest and realistic about our human situation. Now here's my second main point. I've called it a difficult ideal. I want to tell you now about Gwen. Again, not her real name, but she too gave me a recorded interview and uh, this is what she said. And I have to say that just as in the case of Philip, I was very, very saddened when I heard what was being said. Gwen said this, I went to hear somebody speak at a well-known church. At the end of the address, the preacher invited all those who wanted to be the best for God to make a promise that we wouldn't read another word when we got up in the morning of any newspaper or book or magazine before we had read our own Bibles. I was very keen to be the best for God, but I found myself in a dilemma because while I read the Bible most days, there, there were some days when I missed. Yes, of course, I wanted to be the best for God. I wanted to make all the promises that were going, but I didn't want to break my promises. Just imagine her sitting in that seat in the church, absolutely tormented. And she says this, so I sat tight for a bit, and then this other very strong, powerful drive began to work, and I felt I couldn't sit down. I mean, physically, something was making me stand up, and I found that very disturbing. And whether it was to do with other people's approval, perhaps even God's approval, I really don't know. But I stood up and made that promise. What happened? She said, inevitably, I broke it. And it took me a very long time to manage that guilt of having let God down having let myself down. She felt not good enough. In fact, she repeated those words over and over 
in the interview that I had with her. Now, this very sad account obviously demonstrates two things. as the appeal of perfectionism. A fine ideal is being presented, but the danger of perfectionism also, the ideal, is surely unattainable. Technically, she had done something wrong. She'd broken a promise. But it was a perfectionist promise that she should never have been asked to make. Now, I would like to have found out who that preacher was, and I'd like to have asked him a few questions, something along these lines. Did he ever miss his daily Bible reading? Or did he ever read secular material first? And if so, did he feel guilty afterwards? And if he did feel guilty, how did he deal with his guilt? And if he didn't feel guilty, why not? And did he ever advise his congregation how to cope with lapses from daily Bible reading and the ensuing guilt? Now, what I've discovered is that perfectionist guilt is the result of high expectations from home and school and church. And it can last throughout our entire lives because the foundations are laid when we are young. And usually this kind of perfectionist demand is accompanied by a lack of affirmation of genuine achievements, as in the case of uh, Philip that I mentioned. Even though he'd gone to a very good university, even though he'd gone, got a very good result, he still was regarded by his family and by himself as a failure, and he felt guilty. Now, I believe that a lot of us suffer from perfection guilt, whether in our ordinary lives or in our Christian lives. And I want to look, therefore, in my final point, at the, uh, what I regard as a most helpful answer to this issue, a realistic standard. I hope we do want to be the best for God, but how do we set about it? We do need Standards and ideals. I had a friend at Spurgeon's College who had a very uh, wicked and dry sense of humour and uh, he created uh, an extra beatitude. And it went like this. Blessed are those who expect nothing. They shall never be disappointed. <coughs> now obviously... We need standards, we need ideals, but on the other hand, it can result in perfectionist guilt if we're not careful. And here, it could be in sport, it could be the, in a, the academic world, as we've already heard, it could be in business. And I believe that there is a twofold answer, and it's the same in both areas, but I'm going to concentrate on the spiritual area. First of all, that both we and those who expect great things of us must have a realistic view of our own abilities because we are all different. And what one person achieved may be well beyond the ability of another person. And secondly, that those who are observing us and hoping that we're going to do well must affirm our genuine achievements even when they are slightly less than perfect 
And you will find that when people are riddled with affection, with perfection guilt, it will also be almost always accompanied by a lack of affirmation of their genuine achievements. Always a push, you must do better, that wasn't good enough, you've got to be the top, you've got to get first class. Now I have to say that, as we've already heard in the uh, example I gave about Gwen, churches and particularly preachers can provoke feelings of perfection guilt by constantly demanding high standards of Christian discipleship while making little or no allowance for personal differences and the pressures of modern life. You must be at all these meetings. You must be doing this for Jesus. You must be witnessing for him all the time. We end up with massive guilt about not being good enough Christians. I want to give two, just two illustrations of how it might apply in our lives as Christians this morning. One of the tortures at Spurgeon's College was called sermon class when you had to stand up in front of all the other students and all the tutors and preach a sermon and then have it, uh, well, they would say assessed, I would say torn apart afterwards. And um, there there was a, a succession of sermons by students, all of which ended in the same way. Um, you know, a good practical ending to a sermon. So we must all read our Bibles and pray every day if we want to grow as Christians. Those of us who are older will remember there was a scripture union chorus with those words in it. Read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. Well, it was pointed out that if every sermon ends that way... It can be a bit boring and tedious for the congregation. There must be other ways of giving a practical ending to a sermon. I have to say, I haven't ended a sermon in that way for a long, long time. So I'm going to this morning. (laughs) Read your Bible. A few years ago, I accepted the challenge to read the whole Bible in one year. There are various schemes on the market, and uh, I decided I was going to use one of them. Now, of course, it's roughly three chapters every day, and that's quite an assignment, especially in some of the more difficult books of the Bible. You know, the lists of names of genealogies and so on. Well... I did reasonably well, but I have to say, I am a slow reader. And it actually took me 15 months to read the Bible in a year. (laughs) And did I feel guilty? Well, yes, I did a little bit, but I'm glad to say not too much. Now, I want to say this morning, it's wonderful if you can read the Bible every day. But if, like Gwen, you miss a day or whatever the reason may be, don't be overcome by perfectionist guilt. What about prayer? Now, people sometimes ask me, are you, 
are your sermon illustrations all made up? The answer is, no, they're not. These are all genuine illustrations. But this one that I am bringing to you is not made up, but it's something I heard secondhand from somebody else. So I cannot guarantee the details. I can't guarantee exactly what was said, but I believe that in general, this is what happened. There was a Baptist minister of a former generation whose name was the Reverend Stephen Winwood. And it was well known that he used to get up at five o'clock every morning and pray uh, for two hours before breakfast. Now, his wife was a speaker at a Baptist conference and somebody plucked up courage and said to her, your husband gets up at five o'clock every morning and prays for two hours. Do you do the same? And she just laughed, and she said, no, of course not. (laughs) Isn't it lovely to think that people have different standards, different abilities, different targets, different uh, aspirations for the Christian life, and these are good. I want to conclude by returning to Philip and Gwen and what they said at the end of my interviews. Philip told me that he had eventually discovered what he rather amusingly called the untidy God. I think what he meant by that was that he had discovered that God realises that our spiritual lives are not perfectly tidy all the time, and that God understands He says, he is a God I can love. He is a God who accepts me in all my weakness. How lovely to know. Now I quote Gwen. She told me that she had eventually abandoned an image of what she said, and I quote again, a God who was more of a strict headmistress, who was waiting to catch me out, and earnestly wanting me to be perfect. She said she rediscovered an early childhood understanding of God. And she said, it's God's love for what he has made, and that means me. Adrian Plass, in the book that I was given for Christmas, called Seriously Funny, says this, I read somewhere once that God loves us exactly as we are, of far too much to leave us as we are. But the process of change is a gradual one. We are making progress as Christians throughout our spiritual lives. I want to say this to you this morning. Aim high as a Christian, but aim realistically. And when you don't rise quite as high as you would like, Be gentle with yourself and remember at all times that God understands.